Um, let me say a couple of things and we're just going to dive into this. So I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk about, about our calling as men. I want to talk about the things that we're called to. Um, I want to talk marriage. I want to talk getting a wife. I want to talk keeping a wife. I want to talk work. I want to talk sexuality. I want to talk leadership. And that's all really important. That's good stuff. That's beautiful. And I think we're going to get to that stuff. But I just want to say that all the things that you're called to do for Jesus just don't matter one single bit unless you get the depth of your calling to Jesus. Right? Uh, your identity is not rooted and grounded in the things you do for Jesus. And your fact, um, in fact, you're, you're not called to contribute to the work of Jesus by being a really killer man so that you can make it onto the team. It's actually that you're a really sinful man and Jesus lived the life you were supposed to and can't and then was crushed in your place for your sins. And so we do believe in masculinity and we're going to dig in tomorrow to what it looks like to have a really robust masculine culture in the church that actually empowers men to follow Jesus in the relationship that they have with their wives and their city and their brothers. But that's all built on a foundation, man. It's built on this beautiful gospel foundation to Jesus. And that's what we're going to dig into tonight. And so I'm going to pray for us. And if you would just take a second and bow your heads, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to dive into this. John, good seeing you, man. I was hoping you'd be here. All right, so let's do this. Um, for just a second, with nobody looking around, let me just say two impressions I got during worship. And this might make it a little heavy and awkward up front, but that's kind of the territory I, I tend to live in is awkward. Um, I just got a real clear sensing during worship that there's a, a dude in here that's wrestling with same-sex attraction, and you just feel super alone and isolated. And Jesus' message to you tonight is that the Father doesn't define you by your temptations, but by the work of Jesus on the cross. And this is a real beautiful invitation to you this weekend to come into the light and just be known so brothers can love you and serve you and get your back. So that's you and you want to talk to somebody later, me or Brian would be available. Um, and then there's a couple of dudes here that don't know Jesus and um, you, you think that you're here because somebody drug you here or maybe you're even a church goer, but you just don't get the depth of the gospel and you're still trying to clean yourself up. And the Father in His love and wisdom is actually drawing you to Himself this weekend and you're going to feel Him drawing you through the preaching of the Word. You're going to feel Him drawing you through worship and song. And your response to that is not to be strong. Your response to that is to be humble. Because the scripture says that God actually gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And the message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is that you're actually to boast in weakness so that Christ's strength could be manifested, his life and his death. So there's a few of you in here today that that specifically applies to. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us as men. We thank you that, that that calling to you through Jesus is a calling to be sons, not slaves. God, I thank you that that calling you have for us is not because you need cannon fodder. We thank you that you don't need employees. We thank you that you're not seeking and searching just servants to do stuff for you, but we thank you that the work of the gospel is actually... It's actually an adoptive work. You've actually called us into son, sonship. And Father, we don't even get the depths of that like we need to because 
you are a father and you actually want us to be in your family and Jesus actually accomplished the work that can make that happen. And so I just pray that the weight of the gospel would go forward tonight. Um, Holy Spirit, we need you because you're the spirit of adoption that teaches our hearts the reality of the finished work of Jesus so that we can boast in your work and rest in your work and enjoy your work. So God, would you just help me? Um, God, I need you tonight. Would you awaken my affections? Would you help me to worship as I teach? And Would you open my friends' hearts and ears up to you? And would you do something that would change the city? God, you, you can arrest the hearts of men and you use men to change entire cities and cultures. So would you do something really deep and lasting with these dudes? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, that's towards the back of the New Testament. In fact, you could just go to Revelation and then take a left and you're going to land in 1 John eventually. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. And uh, we're going to talk about that sweetest, best, deepest foundational calling, which is not to be a husband. It's not to be a businessman. It's not to be a pastor. It's not to be a good dad. Those are all great things. Those are beautiful things. Those are biblical things. But the best foundational calling that everything is built on is the calling to the Father through the work of the Son. And what we want for the next couple of days is not to just kick you in the nuts and tell you to get over yourself. Um, that, that's what happens way too often in men's conferences and retreats. It's just a, a great spiritual kick in the junk. And basically it's the same treatment that some of you got from really bad dads and really bad coaches. And that's not the end game for the next two days. Actually, what we want to fight for in the next two days is for your joy. We want to fight for your joy. We actually want you to go home as more joyful dudes because that's what your wives in your city needs. And so today, as we look at 1 John chapter 1, let me just set this up by giving you some background about John. Um, this brother's life preaches almost as loudly as the Gospels that he wrote. This guy's life is phenomenal. And, and I just want to be honest with you. Um, I wrestle with feeling like I should be further down the road in my walk with Jesus. Anybody else? Um, I, I look at the sins that still uh, beseech me. I, I look at the wrestles that I still have and the temptations and the frustrations. And, and there's just times in my life where it doesn't feel like I'm growing like I want to grow. Uh, it doesn't feel like I'm keeping pace with the expectations I have for myself. And when I feel that despair, when I feel like I'm not growing at the pace that I want to grow at, um, when I realize that sanctification is not a microwave burrito that's fast, easy, and cheap, but it's slow and it's difficult and painful, I love looking at the life of this brother John. Um, John meets Jesus as a knuckleheaded dude in his 20s. And he is a prototypical, arrogant 20-year-old. Um, this guy, John, was on Jesus' team, and here's the kind of stuff that John does in the early days of ministry with Jesus. Um, they're on a missions trip one day, and they're in a village full of Samaritans. And as they're in this Samaritan village, um, they get kicked out. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so John comes up with the bright idea to suggest to Jesus that they call in a heavenly airstrike of napalm to burn down the village. Right? Remember that? And he thinks that Jesus is going to be like, wow, you are super spiritual, bro. Like, move to the front of the class. We're on a missions trip, and you want to nuke a village. Great. And Jesus looks at John, and he rebukes him because that is not why Jesus came. The people in that village were actually ordered, already under condemnation, and Jesus actually came that they might have freedom. Remember that? And so he has to rebuke this knucklehead. Um, he, he was one of the sons of thunder, and that wasn't a nickname that meant that they were really godly guys. They were really braggadocious, loud, arrogant, foolish guys. 
Uh, we actually see John and his brother. This, this is epic because this is both arrogant and just being an epic mama's boy. Um, we see John and his brother send their mommy to ask Jesus for a special favor, right? Like you're arrogant and you're a mama's boy. Please don't ever date my daughter. And, and so this guy's a train wreck, man. This dude is arrogant. He's prideful. He's braggadocious. Um, there, there's not much humility in this dude. And, and here's what happens. Through the work of the gospel, through the power of God the Holy Spirit, over a lifetime of knowing and walking with Jesus in the power of the Spirit, that guy who is one of the sons of thunder is known as an old man as one of the what? Apostles of love. What we see in 1 John is this guy who's just sort of had the trash beaten out of him by life. We see this guy who all of his dreams for career advancement through following Jesus have sort of been dashed on the rocks. And instead of having tons of people celebrate him, instead of having a big church and a successful ministry, this guy has spent years in exile. He's been abandoned. He's been boiled in oil. He's been mocked. He's been ridiculed. And he just exudes Jesus every time he picks up a pen, right? He's just a man of humility and character. And so as we study these words in 1 John, here's what I want you to see. Um, the, the gospel that John's so boldly proclaiming is not just a theory, it's a concrete reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to take a knuckleheaded 20-year-old like John and actually change his life so thoroughly and drastically that he might be known as the apostle of love. So I hold out hope for myself and for the dudes in this room that through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's this thing that God's doing in you that's going to result in greater joy for you as you reflect Jesus more fully on your last day, not just today. So look at what John has to say. We're going to study the first four verses that are so clearly about the good news of the gospel. Here's what he says, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, or so that your joy may be complete. Let's start with verse 4. He tells us why he's writing so explicitly about the gospel, because he is in an arena fighting for the hearts of men and women that they might experience the joy of, of fellowship with the Father through the work of the Son. He's writing that their joy may be made full. And that's why we're here today, man. We want you to experience the joy of following Jesus Christ and being united with the Father. We are not here today to give you a punch list of stuff that you need to do to clean yourself up. And look right here. Some of you dudes want that right now, right? You want to do Protestant penance while you're at this retreat. You want us to load you up with a massive to-do list. You want us to get in your face. Um, You want us to give you a bunch of rituals and things that you can do in your own strength to try to clean yourself up externally. But actually the work of the gospel is something so much deeper and better than that. It's actually resting in the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Spirit that produces abiding, lasting joy. So what John's saying is this. 
This is actually an invitation to a party, not to a drab, gray, religious ritual. So friends, that's what we're here for, man. We actually want to be guys that taste the depth and the beauty of the work of Jesus and that reflect the depth of that beauty and that joy to our cities and to our wives and to our children. So how does that happen? Well, he unpacks it in the first three verses. They're going to take just a bit at a time and talk about him. Look at verse one. Here's what he starts with. He says, that which was from the beginning. So he, he could be talking about the beginning of Jesus's life on earth, the incarnation, where the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. Maybe he's talking about that beginning. Um, or maybe he's talking about the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, right? Jesus was 30 years old when he started preaching and teaching and healing the sick. Maybe he's talking about that beginning, but I think knowing who this writer is, he's actually talking about the big beginning. He's talking about the reality of Jesus being the pre-existent Son of God. See, this is the same dude that wrote in John 1.1 these words. He said, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. This is the Word that becomes flesh. And here's what he says. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We serve and worship this triune God, not three gods, but one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the scripture teaches that the Son of God is the Word incarnate. He's the perfect fulfillment of all of the Father's desires and will. And here's what it says. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's what he's saying. Um, he's beginning this gospel message, fighting for our joy by saying this. Jesus is not just another created being. Jesus is not a man that eventually became God. Um, God didn't look down and see the work of this guy named Jesus and say, we got to draft that brother. He's killing it. We need him on the team. Um, he, he is not... He is not a man doing great stuff as a great teacher or prophet. He is actually God in the flesh. He's the Son of God who has always been and will always be. What John is saying is this. All things that exist were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So if you're going to get the gospel, here's what John's saying. Um, the Word became flesh and this Son of God, this second person of the Trinity came to earth and all of the universe is actually about Him. The Bible is 66 books, and Jesus claimed that all 66 books of the Bible were actually pointing to him. He is the center of the universe. Paul says in um, Colossians that Jesus is the pre-existent one that is to be preeminent in all things. What does that mean? It means all things are about him and for him, and everything in the universe is actually revolving around Jesus Christ. Now, what does this have to do with your joy? Well, here's what John's saying. Jesus is a really big flipping deal. Here's what he's saying. Um, he's saying that the whole story of the universe is actually about Jesus Christ. He is, he is preeminent in all things. He is the most important, the most glorious. The Father has been pleased to hold up the beauty of Jesus. And what that means is if the entire Bible is about him, and if the whole universe is about him, if he's the center of the story, what it means is your life is not going to have joy unless your life is a part of that story. And so what he's saying in the next few verses is that Jesus is not this um, like performance enhancer that you inject into your life so that you can maximize your potential. 
He's not saying that Jesus is another God that you add to the pantheon of your God so that you can reach your max potential as a businessman or as an employee. Here's what he's saying. To the degree that your story gets plugged into and redeemed by and defined by the story of the gospel, you're actually going to step into lasting and abiding joy. There are dudes in this room right now, and you're trying so hard to figure out how you can plug Jesus into your story, and it's just totally backwards because Jesus is the center of the story. And through the work of the gospel, what we're going to see tonight is that your joy is completed and fulfilled when you surrender and say, actually, you know what? My story, my time on this planet, be it 20 years or be it 90 years, is actually supposed to be about Jesus because everything was made for him and by him, and through him. Now look what he says next in verse 1. He goes on and says, Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. Here's what he's saying. This message of the gospel, this good news of invitation into fellowship for your joy, is not something John is unpacking as secondhand information. He's saying, um, like, I actually handled this message. I've tasted of this message. I'm not cooking you something that I haven't eaten. I've actually tasted of this feast, and now I'm inviting you into something that's really rich and worth it. John had experienced Jesus, and he'd experienced Jesus first historically. What that means is that Jesus is not myth, and the gospel is not myth, and John is a historic witness as one who was close friends with Jesus. John was there when Jesus took a little bit of water and he turned it into wine at a wedding. And it wasn't like janky box wine either, right? In fact, it was so good, it might have been IPA, not wine at all. Um, John was there when Jesus cast demons out of a man who had been cutting himself with stones. John was there when Jesus actually opened blind eyes and when he took a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and multiplied it and fed the multitudes. He saw this stuff. He saw Jesus preach and teach. Um, He saw Jesus ruin a perfectly good funeral by raising a kid from the dead. And, And so John experienced that and he experienced the death of Jesus. He was actually there standing next to Jesus's mom as Jesus died. And so there's this historical reliability to John's testimony. He's saying, I'm not writing about hearsay, man. I'm writing about what I tasted. But better than the historical experience of John is the redemptive experience of John. John, more importantly, experienced Jesus in the power of the gospel. And so John is writing as a sinner who was justified by Jesus' blood, his sins erased and removed. He's writing as one who has been and is being sanctified through the work of Jesus Christ by resting in Jesus' cross. He's writing as one that's been sealed with the Holy Spirit and led through the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's saying, man. Um, I'm an old man now, and this is totally worth it. I'm telling you about what Jesus did for me that I saw and experienced and tasted, and I want you to taste of it also. Now look what he says next concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. John is saying is that Jesus is 
Um, not the one that just provides life or gives life. Jesus is life. The eternal life that you want so desperately is in Him. The life we crave is found in one place. And what John's pointing out is that every single one of us is trying to create life on our own, and you cannot create life because life actually is a person named Jesus. And the depth, that, the depth of your being that's longing for fulfillment and satisfaction, the craving of your soul, John would say, is found in experiencing the life that can only be found in Jesus. See, here's how we do it. Um, track with me on this. We all look for life in either high road or low road or a weird combination of both. Have you guys read the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible? Anybody study that book? It's just bananas. Did you read that? And you're like, why the heck is this in the Bible? Um, it's basically the smartest man that's ever lived, the richest man that's ever lived, and he does this epic experiment, right? He looks for life and satisfaction, first of all, on the low road. And what I mean by low road is that this dude parties and drinks and feasts. Um, he has hundreds upon hundreds of concubines and wives. This dude's parties, um, they make Jay-Z just look like a rookie, right? Like this guy throws epic parties for days. He actually trains himself like an athlete for drinking too much and eating too much and sleeping with too many women. Right? So, so this dude experiences every physical pleasure, everything that this world has to offer that says that it will satisfy the ache of your soul. John tries it times 10, right? He's tried it more than you. And he's tried better ways of doing it than you have. And he gets to the end of Low Road, and here's what he says. This is really exhausting and not fulfilling. He says, this is actually nothing in vanity. Um, low road has left me exhausted and hollow and tired. And, and so he, trades, he changes his strategy at that point, right? If you study the book, he's like, okay, let's try high road now. So instead of low road, here's what he does. Let's try education. Let's try philanthropy. Um, let's try collecting the greatest group of scholars that's ever lived. Let's build a fantastic library. Let's do civic engagement. Um, let's help people, right? Let's serve the poor. Let's build a beautiful society. And, and he builds Jerusalem up, and it's this golden age. It's one of the most epic cities that's ever lived in the history of the world. He tries High Road, and he gets to the end of High Road. And you know what? The city's rad, but his soul's still jacked up. And so he gets to the end of learning more than you've learned and making more money than you've made and being more respectable than you and I are. And he gets to the end of it and he says, this also is vanity. See, we spend our lives um, not to the degree of Solomon, but like Solomon, trying high road and low road or a combination of the two, good deeds or bad deeds, um, being really religious so that you don't need a savior or running from the Savior altogether in blatant sin. We try these things because our souls are thirsty. Jeremiah said, my people, you are digging muddy wells. You're going to muddy, broken down, jacked up wells when the fountain of life is available to you. What John is saying is that that fountain of life is <coughs> Jesus. He doesn't just give eternal life. He is eternal life. Here's the way he puts it in John 17, verse 3. Here's what he says. And this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is not found in what you do. It's not. Life is not found in looking inward and exploring your own heart and motives. 
Life is not found in created things. Life is not going to be found in a better spouse or in more well-mannered kids. Life is not going to be found in a ministry position or with a hotter girlfriend or with a bigger house or with a smaller house or with a fitter body. Jesus actually is the life that we crave. And John is fighting like a gladiator for our joy because there's all these things in our lives right now at this very moment that are telling us that they can bring life and satisfaction to our souls. Now look what he says next. Skip down verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Everybody say proclaim. Proclaim. Um, Here's what he's saying. This message of life that's in Jesus is actually something that you have to hear. And as you hear it, a transaction takes place through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. It is news that you need to hear, which changes everything, not advice about how you can clean yourself up. It's news to be proclaimed. It's not advice that you try to keep in step with. Here's the difference. Uh, Let me tell you a quick story. There was this Scottish paratrooper, who is also a chaplain, so he's just tougher and cooler than anybody in the room already from there. And in World War II, this guy gets shot down. Um, He gets shot down over occupied Europe. And this guy, this Scottish paratrooper who loves Jesus, is in the concentration camp, and he becomes sort of a chaplain to all of these allied soldiers in the concentration camp. And let me just pick up there. Here's what it says. Um, This guy named Murdo McDonald reports this. He says, every day through this stolen radio that they had smuggled in under the eyes of the Nazis, every day I tried to take a headline and give it to my friend through the fence. Unfortunately, the German guards spoke French and English, but we finally realized they didn't speak Gaelic. And every day I would come with a radio headline in Gaelic and give it to my friend through the fence. This went on for many months. One day the news came over the radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. Now, no guards knew of this because all the communication had broken down in Germany. He goes on and says this, I took that news to the fence that day and I gave it to my friend. And that day I stood at the fence with my friend um, and we started to communicate to the British barracks. I waited for what I knew would happen. There was a thunderous roar of celebration from the barracks. The most amazing thing happened. For three days, prisoners of war walked around the camp singing and shouting. We were gloriously happy. We didn't complain about the food. We waved at the dogs and the guards. No guard knew what was happening. Nobody could explain it. Every prisoner of war was rejoicing and celebrating. And on the morning of the fourth day, we prisoners woke up and realized um, it was different. No guards. Apparently in the night they had heard the news and they slipped out into the forest and they left the gates closed but unlocked. On the morning of the fourth day, we walked out of the prison as freed men. See, here's what he's saying, man. The gospel is not advice. It's not three or four tips for you to try to keep in line with if you try really hard. The gospel is news of what God has done through his son that changes your situation. It changes your identity and your circumstance. It's actually something that's so rich and finished that who you are, the very essence of who you are, has been changed as you've believed on Jesus Christ. 
It's news, man. And your circumstances might not instantly change because of the reality of this news, but who you are in the midst of those circumstances gets radically altered through this news. It is news about Jesus. It is news that brings great joy when you get it. These soldiers heard about a reality that had taken place and it changed their perspective. It changed the way they looked at the guards and the way they looked at the dogs. And I'm just telling you, when you get the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for you, it changes the way that you look at the world. He goes on and tells you why. Here's what he says. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. Um, Through hearing and believing this news, as the Spirit of God awakens your heart to this news, here's what happens. What Jesus accomplished on the cross in paying for the sins that you could not pay for, it actually brings you into a fellowship, a relationship that is what your heart longs for. He says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? Okay, look right here and get this. On Jesus' baptism, this really weird event takes place. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 3. Here's what happens. On Jesus' baptism, um, we, we have this really weird happening where the Son of God is baptized in the river, And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and you hear this voice out of heaven that's the voice of the Father, right? And what does the Father say about Jesus? Yeah, he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, Jesus hasn't preached a single sermon yet. Do you know that? He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't yet gone to the cross. But because he is the sinless son of God, because he's the second person of the Trinity, the Father is doing what he has eternally done He's delighting in the Son. See, this is so beautiful. The God that we worship is not a solitary God that's seeking slaves. He is a triune God. He has eternally existed as a Father showering His delight on the Son. In eternity past, before anything was created, the Father beheld the beauty of Jesus, the purity, the perfection, the goodness of Jesus, the Son. And here's what he did. He delighted in releasing his love and his joy all over the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So for all eternity, for all eternity, the Father has been delighting in the Son. And the Son in the power of the Spirit for all eternity has been delighting in the Father. And the Spirit delights in the Father. And the Spirit delights in the Son. And so in the beginning, before anything was created, we have a God who is one God, but in three persons, who is completely, inexpressibly joyful and content in that fellowship. He is happy. He is full. He is radiating and bursting with life and joy in Himself. And this is what we see in the baptism of Jesus. We just see a picture of that Trinitarian fellowship that the Father delights in the Son and the Son delights in the Father and the Spirit of God is taking that delight and making it real in the life and heart of the Son. He's making it experiential. Now, what the heck does this have to do with what we're reading in 1 John chapter 1? Well, here's what John's saying. 
through this gospel, through this good news of Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection in our place, here's what happens. You are brought into fellowship with God. Not that you become a part of the Trinity, that's just weird. But here's what happens. The fellowship that the Father has delighted in having with the Son, in pouring out his delight on the Son, you actually get to taste of that through the work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what God wants for you, this deep abiding joy that John is writing about, what God wants for you is for you to realize that through Jesus' substitutionary life, death, and resurrection, by grace alone, through faith alone, you are brought into fellowship with God the Father and God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And what really happens, get this, what really happens is that Jesus' full life of righteousness gets credited to you even though you and I don't deserve it. His right standing, His perfect obedience, His goodness, the Father's joy in Him, it gets credited to you just as all of your disobedience and my disobedience, your sin, your failing, your wickedness, your neglect of your wife, your workaholic tendencies, your sexual perversions are put on Jesus on the cross. He takes your sin. He that knows no sin becomes sin for us. And this great exchange happens because of God's grace where our unrighteousness is paid for by Jesus. It's put on Jesus and his righteousness is credited to us by grace. So here's what happens when God the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The Bible says this, he is the spirit of adoption by whom you cry, Abba, Father. So here's what we see at the baptism of Jesus. Before Jesus does any work in ministry, before he preaches a sermon, before he heals a sick person, the Father delights in him and the Spirit of God manifests that delight in his heart. Do you know what the reality of the gospel is for you? Through the work of Jesus right now in this very moment, God the Father is actually delighting in you. He's not delighting in a future you. Would you finally get your act together and stop doing fill in the blank or start doing fill in, fill in the blank? He actually delights in you. He actually enjoys you. See, I can believe theologically that God loves me because God is love. That's his job. He has to love me. But see, here's the reality of it and the depth of it. He actually likes you. He actually wants to fellowship with you. The work of Jesus has been so complete and so total and so radical that what you've been invited into through Jesus' death in your place is not a life of grudging obedience where you just submit because you have to so God doesn't smack you. You actually are invited into experience and taste of this beautiful Trinitarian fellowship of love, you get to taste of it. The Father's delight in the Son, the Son's delight in the Father, the Spirit manifesting and making that experiential. That's actually what it means to be a Christian. And John's writing these things so that your joy may be made full. So friends, I want you to get this. All the stuff that we are called to as men externally, um, laying down your life for your wife as Jesus lays down his life for the church. 
work in a job, which is a biblical calling and a high calling and a beautiful thing. Um, serving your children and teaching them the word of God and caring for them and mentoring and pointing them in the right direction, giving to your church, engaging in ministry, loving your neighbors. Those are all wonderful things. But you know what? Those things flow out of the experiential reality of what Jesus accomplished on his cross to make you sons of God. God actually wants you to live out your life in the joy of experiencing his delight through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's just be super honest. Right now, in this very moment, it seems too good to be true. Because we're super aware of our failings and our sin and our brokenness and our weakness. And we're not nearly as aware of how fully Jesus took that upon himself on the cross. And what's really going to change our lives is not this white knuckle, let's try to get after it. Maybe tomorrow Josh will yell at me and Brian will kick me in the junk and tell me to be a better husband and I'll try harder for six weeks. What really begins to change us is walking in an awareness of this good news that produces such great joy. It's walking in it. This is where your sanctification is built on your justification. You growing up as a man is not built on you just trying harder. It's built on what Jesus already did and enjoying it deeper, tasting of it more fully and more richly. And it's something that we don't do by ourselves. Look at what he says in verse 3. Not only do you have fellowship with God, the Father, through the work of Jesus in the Holy Spirit, but look what he says in verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us. See, God is building this beautiful family that reflects his glory and his beauty. And it would be enough to be brought into fellowship with the living God of the universe. But here's what he's saying. Through the work of Jesus Christ, you can actually have brothers that you don't have to hide in front of or play games with. You are so fully loved by God the Father because of Jesus' finished work that you can actually confess your sins to one another and not pretend like you're okay when you're not okay. You can actually come clean when you need to come clean. Are you tracking with this? You can actually have dudes that see you in the light of Jesus' finished work, not through the lens of criticism and religion, always looking for ways to point out where you've blown it. You actually can have brothers that see you through the lens of the gospel who call you to repentance, not so that God would love you, but because he loves you so stinking much. So I want to read these words one more time. Let, let these sink in. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy or 
your joy may be made complete. I want to see God do something in this church where he produces in us a group of joyful warriors. Where our labor for our wives, our labor for our city, and our fighting for one another is actually built upon the foundation of this beautiful relationship that we're invited into through Jesus' death and resurrection. That it's good. And, and really, really, Paul meant it when he said, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So here's what I'd like us to do. If you would, can we stand up? And I just want you to close your eyes.